regeneration it means to increase the life holding capacity of a place that's one of those myths the one is you can't do it on large scale and the other one you can't feed the planet with it both of them are absolute bullshit you should all be eating maximum once or twice a week meat but if we eat that meat from regenerative farms then that is actually meat that is supporting our planet in regenerating itself because most parts actually need animals as part of a natural system. There is a solution out there for a problem that we're having and it's academically backed and there's a lot of knowledge about it online but nobody seems to speak about it, nobody seems to be interested in it and nobody seems to be doing it. We applied to the Google Impact Challenge on climate. So Google puts 10 million euros every year into a pot to solve climate change and we applied for that with a plan to generate Europe's first proper methodology to generate carbon credits for farmers in transition to regenerative agriculture. One big application and a few conversations later we got announced as one of the 10 winners and we got a 650,000 euro grant. We didn't know yet what the value of the company is so we decided to delay the decision by raising around with a convertible note. We might have had to accept the VC on our board of directors or let people go. A lot of the principles of industrial agriculture are around death, around having one plant kind of grow and everything else not growing. In regenerative agriculture, you work a lot more with the symbiosis of nature. Nature constantly adapts to the different circumstances and the context that it's in. So depending on your context, that should dictate what you should grow. You should not go somewhere and say, I grow that. You should be going there, you should be observing, what? Bonjour, bonjour, and welcome to Mission First, the podcast to learn from successful entrepreneurs changing the world for the better. In this podcast, you will learn from entrepreneurs who have already found product market fit and are scaling up fast. We discuss their challenges and the strategies they have applied to make things work. Think of it as a masterclass about business and product innovation, growth marketing, and leadership. I am Gilles Toussaint. I help mission-driven companies exceed their revenue objectives with growth marketing, product-led growth, and LinkedIn personal branding strategies. Conventional agriculture practices have led to soil degradation, loss of biodiversity, and increased carbon emissions, threatening our food supply and amplifying climate change. But what if I told you there is a way to reverse this? Regenerative farming doesn't just sustain it, it brings back the health of the soil, sequesters carbon, and boosts biodiversity. For the future of our planet and our food, regenerative farming isn't just an option, it's a necessity. Today, I'm very excited to talk to Philip Birker, CEO of Climate Farmers. They accelerate the transition to regenerative agriculture by providing farmers with financial and technical support. They support more than 700 farmers. They have 30 FTEs. They got 1 million funding raised without giving away company shares here without VC money. So I'm very excited to talk today about three different topics. What is regenerative agriculture? How do you put impact first with an economical model focused on growth? and how to choose and prepare best for an accelerator program. Philip, thank you very much for being here with us. I'm very excited to talk to you. How are you? Pleasure to be here, Jos. I'm very good. Sitting in my outside office in the Portuguese mountains, and that always puts a, puts a good static smile on my day. Yeah, it reminds me, I went seven weeks last year in Portugal, and it, this is a really fantastic country. On which side of Portugal are you in? We are in the, in the center, in the, in the most remote part, the, the part where you see five cars on a day coming by. Okay. <laughs> so this podcast is called Mission First. Tell me a bit, what's your mission? I guess my, my bigger mission is to help humanity in the transition to the age of regeneration. I think the, the, the company mission is to scale regenerative agriculture. But I think around regenerative agriculture, we have a whole regenerative movement happening, which is, I think, the, the thing that really needs to happen at the moment. Can you give us a bit the, the elevator pitch of climate farmers? I tried to describe it in the intro, but you'll do that better than I do. When, when, someone, when someone asks me this, I usually ask, how much do you know about regenerative agriculture, right? Because if I have to explain the, what Region Ag is, then, then we're leaving the elevator. Um, if, you, if you know what Region Ag is, then essentially we are supporting across farmers in the transition towards regenerative agriculture on the nonprofit side through a farmer-to-farmer, peer-to-peer learning community, with um, context-based um, transition advice and through transition finance with the usage of carbon and biodiversity credits. It's a very good elevator pitch. We'll, we'll, we'll talk about regenerative agriculture. God, it's difficult to say that word. <laughs> but before we go into the advice, let's understand a bit how everything started. And, and before that, something I always like to ask is, 
which context do we need to be aware of to understand where you are at right now? Going back to your past experience, your career, your childhood, what explains how you are right now at such a position with such a high commitment to change the world for the better is your company? Mm, I think the one thing is definitely a combination of countryside and city life, uh, which is what I'm now doing half year, half year. And I grew up on the countryside in a very rural setting with my godmother having a farm, seeing conventional farmers struggle early on, and then spending 10 years living in Amsterdam and Berlin, really getting fueled by meeting amazing people, by realizing what's going on in the world, going to a lot of cultural events, getting in touch with the startup scene, and kind of realizing that the solutions are out there and that despair is not the way to go for, but rather working on pushing the solutions, which we actually have for the problems that we're having. And then I think one very important thing for me as well was that with 21, I went to Cape Town and I studied in Cape Town and spent in total a bit more than a year in Southern Africa. And that really changed my perspective in terms of not having grown up very wealthy in Germany, but still realizing that just having a German passport is something that makes me incredibly privileged on the one hand. And on the other hand, that money is not the path to happiness and many people are a lot happier than many people in Europe, despite the fact that they have a lot less economical wealth. And that kind of what pushed me in the direction of, hey, I don't want to live a life that's dedicated to building up economical wealth, but I want to live a life that's dedicated to building up human connections and having a positive impact on the world. And the key moment for that one, I think I can still pin it down to TEDx in Cape Town and the Aveto project, uh, which is an amazing project, uh, which people can find out online. What's the name of it? Avetu Project. Essentially, it's two South Africans that went to Harvard, um, then went back because they said they want to do something in their own country. And then they realized that people in townships are very often, so the poorest of the country are very often incredibly smart. So they did some IQ and leadership tests and they found a guy pushing trolleys at the airport at an IQ of 164. And so they decided to invest in building up companies with these people take a share in those companies and build a wealth by actually supporting people to run businesses that elevate the entire community out of poverty. And I found that very inspiring. The slogan there is, I think, how to do well by doing good. That's a very inspiring story. Maybe I should try to have them on this podcast. It's, it was 10 years, it was 13 years ago. So I have no idea what these guys are doing now. Yeah. But, uh, ideas worth spreading, right? Like, yeah. uh, this this mojo from from uh, from TEDx is really good. Very very inspiring story that that you seem to have here. Can you tell us a bit how did climate farmers start? I heard about an abandoned village in Portugal. So how how did all of this started? Yeah, I mean that that's pretty much where I'm sitting right now. And the story of this began about eight seven years ago now. So while I was living in Amsterdam, really enjoying the life there, um, working at Fairphone back then, I, I did miss nature, especially in the Netherlands. It's something that you do. And so for me, the idea started arising, how do I bring the people in the city, which I very much resonate with and which I really want to have around me, want to surround myself with, in the context where I much rather, which is in nature. And in Germany and the Netherlands and so on, it's very hard. To, to, to buy land and especially to be able to select your own neighbors and neighbors are very often on the countryside the, the issue unfortunately um, and that's why we started looking around and here in Portugal they passed a law that you can rebuild broken down houses and you don't need any planning permissions and as a German that's quite crazy because in Germany you need a planning permission to raise your fence at many centimeters and so I was traveling here for a while um, trying to find something and then through Via Via Connections, we heard that there's an abandoned village uh, basically up for sale. And um, that was in 2017. And we bought parts of the village first. And then over step over the time, we acquired more parts of the village. Now we're eight people owning it together with a few hectares of land as well. Um, and basically, the idea was to recreate a village community here. And because we have the land as well, I started looking into permaculture and then regenerative agriculture back in 2017, 2018. And back then, nobody in Europe was speaking about this. But it was crazy because I found a TED Talk again from Alan Savory from 2013, where he already speaks about um, holistic management and the potential that it has to sequester carbon and regenerate soil. 
And I also found papers, academic papers from Wageningen University from the 80s and 90s, speaking about the amazing potential of regenerative agriculture to build biodiversity, sequester carbon, etc. So I was like, huh. At that point, I realized that agriculture is responsible for 24% of all greenhouse gas emissions. I did not dive so deep yet into the whole issue of nutrition and biodiversity that we have as well. But it was pretty clear to me that there is a solution out there for a problem that we're having. And it's academically backed. And there's a lot of knowledge about it online. But nobody seems to speak about it. Nobody seems to be interested in it. And nobody seems to be doing it. And then I, I went on a one-year pilgrimage, I would say. And I spent one year trying to find and visit and work with regenerative farmers across Europe. I didn't find a lot of them. I found 60 in total in the whole of Western Europe. And I visited these 60 farmers and went from farm to farm and basically asked them how they got into regenerative agriculture, why they think it's not scaling, and what I could do to help them. And parallel to that, I was in Berlin. This was all in 2019, where I met um, Ivo again, who's my co-founder at Climate Farmers. And we both know each other through a youth program from Ashoka called Changemaker Exchange. And we've been bouncing ideas off each other for a while. He also grew up on a farm. He was also looking into regenerative agriculture at that point. And that's why we decided to unite forces. And based on the learnings of the farm visits, essentially, we, we came to the conclusion that there's kind of three main areas that are there to tackle if we, if we want to, to scale regenerative agriculture. Let's talk about these. I would be really interested to first define what is regenerative agriculture and then talk about the challenges you help them overcome. I mean, essentially, the, 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 core, issue, the core definition would be it's uh, regenerative agriculture is agriculture that's in line with nature. We, we wrote a definition, a manifesto, with uh, 60 farmers in 2021. And they are saying uh, regeneration means to increase the life-holding capacity of the place. So this is uh, the big differentiation that we're doing to industrial agriculture. A lot of the principles of industrial agriculture are around death, are around killing weeds, weeds are around killing solar, around having one plant kind of grow and everything else not growing. In regenerative agriculture, you work a lot more with the symbiosis of nature. So you would never see monoculture fields, for example. You would always have diversity of plants which are collaborating together. And I think the key process that people might have heard in their childhood in school once about, but then forgot about that, that, that we're talking about here is photosynthesis. So every it's plant that you see, like including all the trees behind me, uh, through photosynthesis, mm -hmm. taking carbon out of the atmosphere, and they're storing it in the plant and they bring it through their roots into the soil. And then under the soil level, you have something like a, like a bazaar going on where the one plant trades the carbon and it's like, hey, you get some nutrients for me, maybe some magnesium, some potassium. And then you have a lot of interaction between the different roots of the different plants, if they are different plants. And you have mycorrhiza, which is like fungi spores between them, which is like the, the Dutchman of the soil. So they are like the main tradesmen that are making all the deals happen and have their massive networks. And this is, on the one hand, the best way that we have of getting carbon out of the atmosphere. And because it gets stored in the soil and gets brought deeper into the soil through the different traits. And on the other hand, also a way how we have very healthy, nutritious plants because they get their nutrients in a very natural way. What we're doing in regenerative agriculture is we are, we're trying to enhance this. We're trying to, everything to encourage this bazaar, to encourage the trading, to increase the life. Now, in conventional agriculture, you essentially have a monoculture field most of the time or you have just one plant, so there's not much trading going on because if you got carbon and I got carbon, how are we going to trade this with each other? And so we are adding a lot of pesticides, fertilizers, and everything externally in order to kill any kind of other plant that would naturally come up and to add the nutrients to the plant outside um, that it would normally get from the soil. And what we get through that is because we add a lot of nutrients and we can control it, we get a very stable growth, but we don't get all the natural processes which are going on. We don't get the increase in biodiversity. We don't get the carbon sequestration. And we don't get the soil water storage capacity because healthy living soil also soaks up water, which is what uh, dead soil, essentially, or unhealthy soil as we are having it and generating it, is not doing, which is also leading to the floodings, for example, and the droughts that we're having in Europe right now. 
So you can already see it. The way how it's working right now is that we're very focused just on yield. Farmers only get paid for yield. And if you just focus on the yield, then the processes make sense. But we're completely neglecting, and that's what we're often doing with our mindset in society nowadays of being very specialized, all the other ecosystem services which we could be generating if we would be farming in line with nature and which we are not generating and have not been caring about, we have to say, over the last 40, 50 years with the rise of uh, industrial agriculture, essentially. And that's what's leading to a lot of problems nowadays because on the one hand, our food is not very nutritious. So people get very sick. Very practically, company Bayer, which is selling us most of our pesticides and fertilizers, is also selling us medicine. <laughs> one of those things which I, which I never could wrap my head around, that this is not making people aware, like, something's wrong here, you know? You're poisoning our food, we get sick, and you sell us the medicine, and your shareholder um, prices increase. Lovely. Um, so that's the reality we're living in there. Um, and at the same time, we also have a massive biodiversity loss. Why do we have mostly the biodiversity loss? Because of the same pesticides, again, that we are using, which are not just killing the evil weeds, they're also killing all the insects. Um, and we have, um, because of these uh, tools and the message of plowing, which is another massive issue, which is where you essentially go down and you till all the soil over. And through that, you also kick out the, the entire bazaar. Yeah. So you would have to imagine life builds up over here. If it even does, then you put poison on it to kill a bit, and then you kick everybody out anyways, and you start all over again. And that's what we do instead of building it up. So that's one of the things which uh, is not happening in regenerative agriculture would be the practice of tilling. Um, and that essentially then leads to yeah, to the, the services that I was explaining, but we don't pay farmers for them yet. When we focus on yield, it makes sense. Like the industrial agriculture makes sense. Yeah. It really makes me think about, you know, if, if you focus on the wrong KPI, you always do the wrong thing. Exactly. It's exactly like GDP. I mean, I had two interviews recently with Timothy Parik and Julian Derovex yeah. from Sismic, and it's the same thing, right? Like talking about degrowth. If we focus on right now, focusing on GDP, it's just refocusing on the the wrong KPI that doesn't include the the that doesn't include basically biodiversity, sustainability, planet, people, just money. Yeah. Um. So yeah, just a, a side note on this. Uh, but to understand how a regenerative farm looks like or produces, I, I, I grew up in the countryside, but then I quickly moved to the city. So I lost That's a bit of touch with all of that. <laughs> so how does a, a farmer's for me just makes wheat and then he makes like crops and crops and wheats of wheat yeah. and then sell them. Uh, and maybe they do some with, with uh, salads or something. But how does a regenerative farm looks like? Do they sell a lot of different products then? Is it like what kind of scale are they looking at? Uh, are we looking at? If this podcast helps you, please do me a huge favor and click on the follow button on your podcast platform. It helps to grow this podcast faster and to convince the most impactful entrepreneurs of the world to join me in these interviews so that you and other entrepreneurs can learn from them. So the, the, one of the most important words you will hear when you start diving into the field of regenerative agriculture is context. Everything is incredibly context specific, which is also very hard to make it scalable because everybody wants one size fits all solution, which you can just roll out. That's not how nature works. Nature constantly adapts to the different circumstances and the context that it's in. So depending on your context, that should dictate what you should grow. Do you, if you would be wanting to be a regenerative farmer, you should not go somewhere and say, I grow that. You should be going there. You should be observing. What is the nature? What is the natural context? What is the soil type? What are the weather conditions? What makes sense in this context where my farm is to grow? And then you do that and you try out and you do experiments. And this can, for example, mean that you still have uh, a large crop field just because it still is easier for harvesting in our system set with, for example, in summer, let's say wheat. But what you would do, you would also have what you call LA cropping. So you would have rows of trees but which are far enough from each other so that a tractor can still be going through. And you would have the trees, which are also bringing nutrients and bringing carbon in the soil. So you already have a trade that can be going on there. And then what you're doing is once you harvest the one thing, you already plant the next thing. So you always have a living root in the soil. You never have bare soil. You might have seen it traditionally in farming. At some point it's harvested and then the soil is bare. I always say bare soil is a bit like an Irish man lying in the sun. It's just not a good idea. 
and it's drying and dying out further. So that would be another thing that you would be having. And then you would usually also try to integrate animals, which can, for example, graze off the nipples, because also animals are an integral part of any natural ecosystem. They eat off plants, they poo, they fertilize, they spread things around. So you would also integrate them in there and have chickens, for example, going after the uh, wheat has been harvested, or you would have cows going over that. And you would essentially see how do I naturally imitate the complexity of nature by having many things which are in symbiosis, which is other functioning. What's the science of regenerative agriculture telling us here in terms of in the future, do we have to go 100% vegan? Because I read, I try, I read a lot about these things and sometimes you hear that, oh, you locally, sometimes it's good to eat animals. So do you have an insight on that that I, don't, that I probably don't have? For sure. Um, it's a very fascinating one, actually, for me. So um, I've been a seven-year vegetarian for planetary and uh, animal well-being reasons. And then through Region Ag, I, I call myself a farmtarian now. Um, you before, are? Before, a farmtarian. Farmtarian. Um, before we get to that, so a, a little background info is, and, and this is showing, it's a good example of how messed up our agricultural system is, I think. So... Cows, for example, which are very much made responsible for being climate killers, um, which is what they are because of the context that we put them in. in Nature does not design animals which harm the planet. And cows, for example, are ruminants, which means they have a stomach, same as buffaloes, for example. Any wild grazing herbivore would usually be a ruminant, which means they have a stomach which is designed to eat grass, a bit like koalas, eucalyptus, panda bear, watching our planet in regenerating itself, because some parts of our planet, need, most parts actually need animals as part of a natural um, system. That's something I'm learning as well with my kid now watching, I used to watch a lot of documentaries, National Geographic and stuff when I was like, like smaller, but what I didn't realize is now I'm watching some documentaries from the 50s or 60s, like from Disney, from the 60s, 70s, about lions in Savannah. And, yeah. and it's how close all the animals are. Yeah. You know, I was always like thinking the lion, they have to go miles and or like tigers, miles to find the antelopes. Or, and, but then we realize they are living together. They just decide to hunt at some point because they're hungry, but they, they live basically in the same ecosystem the whole time. Yeah. <clears throat> I have one last question uh, because before we move to the, what, how you help farmers is uh, to, to finalize a picture from a regenerative farm, which is way clearer right now. Is it meant to be only local? Meaning does a farmer like from a regenerative farm is supposed to you know, stay small and be in the context there? And, 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 or is it possible to scale? First of all, uh, regen farms can be massively large scale. And that's also why I gave the example in the very beginning, because people often think of market gardeners, etc. But I said, Francisco, for example, 700 hectares. That's a big farm for European standards. Um, now, I was last week speaking at the Climate Change Summit in Bucharest, and uh, there I met some farmers from Eastern Europe, a Ukrainian farmer who has 5,000 hectares and is doing regenerative agriculture. And um, that there's no size limitation, essentially. Um, there's always just an adaption to the context that you're in. Um, And yeah, so I think that that's one of those myths. The one is you can't do it on that scale and the other one, you can't feed the planet with it. And both of them are very well spread by the, well, I think chemical yeah, fertilizer you know. is probably the ones which are doing a very great job there. Um, both of them are absolute bullshit. Like, uh, not sure what your position on swear words is here in the podcast, but that's uh, all fine. <laughs> but um, yeah, it, it, it's really annoying me because I don't think we will be able to feed the planet in the way how we're growing right now because we're destroying our soils We see harvest going down. We see the addiction to the chemical inputs going up of the crops. We see farmers suffering because they can't pay the rising prices. And they need to use more and more and more and more in order to get the same kind of rush as people maybe see, you know, the more alcohol you drink, the more alcohol you need to get drunk. Uh, yeah. And you enter this vicious cycle. And we entered the vicious cycle as a society in the way how we're growing our food. That's insane. And then yeah. people, and yeah, and so for me, it's, it, there's, there's no alternative towards that transition, but um, we're still nowhere close to where we need to get because we have too many people which are profiting from the current system. But to talk about the transition, it's a good, it's a good point. Uh, so how you mentioned three different points you found 
on on which you you could help like farmers yeah transition so can you explain us a, a bit these points and probably it goes into the your economical model yeah um i mean the the, the very first thing to always start with is, is for many people a surprising one the biggest issue and i think it's important to say here again what the context is that i'm operating in which is the european context so everything that i'm saying i'm saying based on five years of working on this in europe it could be very different in other countries on other continents, right? So I, I cannot speak for people in America. I cannot speak for people in Africa or anywhere outside of Europe. But in Europe, we have a massive issue with the lack of appreciation for farmers. Farming is not sexy. I grew up in a village. I grew up in a very agricultural context. Not a single person in my high school wants to become a farmer. It's quite the opposite. In school, they tell you, yeah, if you don't learn well and you fail in school, then you have to become a farmer. That's messed up because farmers are the backbone of our society. They're doing a highly complex job managing thriving ecosystems if they're doing regenerative agriculture. But nevertheless, it's not something you would, you would put, you would say on the first date that you're on, you know, it's not something you would put in your Tinder profile. And um, it's not something that people are proud of at the moment because we are not perceiving it in society like that, right? It's pretty cool to be a podcaster, cool to be an entrepreneur, cool to be a consultant, but not to be a farmer. And that led to the fact that right now the average age of farmers in the European Union is in the late 50s. And it's very logical that that is one of the biggest blockers that we have now in the transition because imagine you're on the farm in the late 50s. Over the last 30, 40 years, your government, your consultants, your sales agents, everybody has been pushing chemical input costs on you. If you're organic one, then organic input costs. Everybody has been selling you massive tractors, big plows, you know, and been telling you, that that is the right way forward and the right way to do it. And if you were then at a point that you are five years before retirement and someone comes along and is like, by the way, have you ever considered that what you've been doing for the last 30 years was maybe not a good idea and uh, that you should maybe be doing something completely different? Um, and by the way, you've been causing climate change by your activities. Did you know that? And people are like, what? And they're not very open to that because there's a cognitive dissonance for most people to acknowledge that something that you've been doing yourself was wrong. We don't like to do that. We're not trained to do that. And that is a massive issue. So the biggest driver, and of course there's exceptions, but the biggest driver that we are seeing in the region X transition is young farmers, is age. Mostly farmers between 30 and 45, which uh, didn't want to take over the farm with their parents because they saw them struggle, went into the city, became a consultant, realized this is also not making me happy, and then going back to the farm with the parents and saying, okay, I'm going to take over the farm, but only if you let me do it my way and if you let me take it regenerative. And then the farmer's like, okay, okay. As long as you take <laughs> over the farm, you do your real experiments. And then you have different transition journeys. Sometimes it works very beautiful, like in, like in, in Germany, I know a beautiful example, the Eichenhof. Um, sometimes it doesn't work so well because it's hard for the parents to let go. But the core thing is a lack of appreciation for farmers. We need to make farming sexy again, and that's why we took the name Climate Farmers. And that's why we're doing a lot of storytelling and explaining why we believe regenerative farmers are the heroes of our times. And that's why we believe that we need to start appreciating them more and also rewarding them more financially because farmers have consecutively getting less and less and less money off the food supply chain. I think in Germany, it's there 4% of a liter of milk is going to the farmer or 4% of bread and 16% of milk, I think. But it's ridiculous. Most farmers that I know get 30 to 35 cents for a liter of milk. And in the supermarket, I think you're paying 150 or something like this for that. And all the work is done, right? This is milk. Like it gets filled in a freaking container and it gets brought to the supermarket and put in there. Why is a farmer getting 35 cents of your milk when you're paying something like one euro 50 for that? That makes no freaking sense to me. Um, and yeah, and that just makes it a not attractive job. And that is, that is the first issue. That is it as hard to work when you make a regenerative farm i think the suicidal rate uh, among farmers is, is also like one yeah. like probably the highest if not one of the highest on, on earth because also i remember like farmers they don't have holidays i mean people in my in, in my village like you they work all the time and and you other kids were from from farmers and they had to help their parents all the time and it was it was a very 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 demanding job is it also a pro side of regenerative agriculture? Do we have to change that model too if you want to attract more young people there? 
No, I wouldn't say it's easier. I think it's more enjoyable. It's more fun. You, it's more rewarding. All of the regenerative farmers that I know are people which are generally happy people, despite the fact that they don't get paid for most of the ecosystem services that they're providing, that they don't get recognition in society, but they love what they're doing, right? They're doing it for intrinsic reasons. So I think it's definitely a group of people that, uh, yeah, that, that love what they're doing, but it's a fucking hard job. It's just, it will always be a fucking hard job. And especially if you want to line in, if you want to farm in line with nature, like most farmers that I know work 12, 14, 16 hours a day. Um, but it's okay. Because if you love what you're doing and you're fairly rewarded for it, then I don't think there's a problem with that necessarily. You know, like working is not something like I, I definitely had my weeks where I worked way too many hours as well. But if you love what you're doing, then that's fine. But the problem is just that in the system where we are set up, also, because farmers don't get the money, they can't hire someone else to help them with that, right? Because yeah. essentially, you could be splitting this up. You don't need one person to be there for 16 hours, but you need someone. And because the finances are so tight on the farm, there's no budget available. So what we should be doing is moving forward. And I know that some farms, for example, Good Heiderhof outside of uh, Hamburg, they made that decision at some point to increase the life quality of the farmers and to try to hire more people, which meant they had to raise their prices, which is what people then not used to again, you know? And if we want to have farmers to have a higher life quality and a better work-life balance, essentially, then we would have to pay more for our food so people can pay people and can also take holidays and pay someone while they go on holidays, right? Because that's the whole situation. It's very hard to get w good workers on farms as well, just because the salaries are so bad, just because the money that ends up in the pockets of farmers is so little. Imagine what would happen if we would pay, start paying consultants less and farmers yeah. more. Exactly. That's the world I want to live in. Yeah. Yes. Although um, I have to say, region ag consultants also do an amazing job, you know, and that's also okay. I think we can all do with a little <laughs> less life coaches and a little yeah. less. Uh, there's definitely a lot of things in our society which get very highly rewarded financially, but don't give a lot of benefits to society, right? I mean, we still live in a society where people who work for oil and gas companies get the highest salaries. I'm pretty sure if you work at Bayer, you get an amazing salary, you know? So the problem that we're having is, is that those jobs which actually are destroying our planet are the jobs which reward you financially and those jobs which give us a benefit either be it social jobs or be it sustainable jobs or being at farmers they get consecutively cut down because you get a reward from social factors why would you should get money <laughs> that's the mindset that we need to change in our society you know you damage the planet you get a bad salary you reward the planet you do something good for society you should get a good salary and that switch has not happened yet unfortunately yeah, we'll get there. But um, so I, I cut you off before you were moving to the second point to you, you help farmers with or yeah. you, the challenges that they, they need to overcome. So the, the I mean, the first one is more of a meta level, right? The first yeah. one is more of a, we just need to make it attractive again. And then the interesting thing was I was visiting all of these farmers and they were all doing amazing stuff. And they were like the first leading region ag farmers in Europe, but they all didn't know each other. And many of them love what they're doing, but they often also felt lonely. They often got bullied by their neighbors who were like, why are you moving your cows on a daily basis, Joao? You know? um, and there's a lot of like, social pressure as well. So the first thing we did, we connected them. And we brought them to each other. Coming from a startup context, we tried to do fancy things like Slack and Mighty Gathering and so on. Obviously, that didn't work. In the end, every farmer's on WhatsApp. So we connected them in a WhatsApp group. And we did some trainings and coachings. We collaborated with Richard Perkins. We did Zoom calls online with most of the leading region ex experts who all were willing to come and speak for free to our farmers, be it Alan Savory, be it John Kempf. Like, it was, it was incredible. Or Elaine Ingham, one of the best salt scientists around the world. Nicole Masters. I'm still really thankful that they just answered these random requests um, and spoke with the farmers. And we started building a community for them. And it was incredible to see, like, there was... Every day, there was like lots of messages speaking about issues with the, with the family, with the spouse, with the, with the growing, like anything. And just to start to build this support network for farmers. And that's now spread across Europe. So we have an English-speaking community where farmers from 16 different countries are in. We have a Spanish-speaking community, a Portuguese one. We are looking into opening a German and an Italian one soon. And, um, and we're basically providing farmers just there with, with a sense of belonging. Um, of other people which are with them on the journey. So conventional farmers can join. That's all, it's all for free. It's all philanthropic. Hey, before you jump to the next part of this episode, one quick info. 
If you don't want to miss the best strategies for entrepreneurs like you, sign up for my newsletter with a link in the description. You will receive a summary of advice from each episode, get personal recommendations based on your startup stage and industry. And you will also receive my most useful growth and LinkedIn marketing strategies. Just follow the link in the description to sign up. Back to the next part of this interview. Um, and they can just learn the basics of regenerative agriculture. And then we also build up a consulting arm to help farmers in the creation of a transition plan for their specific context. Because then at some point you get into Regenac and you start learning like, oh, you know, there's these five principles and there's some things I can do. But again, things depend on the context. So we have to see what works for you on your farm. So that's also why we're working on building up more model farms so that farmers can visit other farmers where they can see what Region Act looks like in practice on a farm that's similar to the farm that they're having. Unfortunately, fortunately, we have seen a rise in Region Act interest in the last three, four years. Mm -hmm. Unfortunately, that also leads to a lot of people that want to ride the hype wave, let's say. So we saw a lot of fancy new Region Act consultant websites popping up. And in my experience, the more fancy the website, the worse the consultant. And the better the, consul the consultant, the harder it is to reach him. So the best ones usually have a WhatsApp number um, and you have to try to catch them while there's someone on a farm. And that's really hard for farmers to find. So we built a farmer-backed consultant agency where we essentially had asked our farmers who were the consultants that they can recommend um, so that we actually know that they know what they're talking about. And then farmers can talk to one of these consultants they have to pay them, of course, because they're consultants. They're also making their money. Um, and they can help them to figure out what would be the logical first steps to go on that transition. And then when we have this second knowledge pillar, kind of, which we're doing with our Climate Farmers Academy, then we are going to the third issue, which farmers have been raising to us, uh, which is transition finance. And that brings us towards our business model slowly. Um, because Region Act back then and still is not getting the attention that it should. And back then, there was also no one interested in the regenerative produce to pay more for that, right? So these farmers, they're producing a lot more healthy food, a lot more nutrient-dense food, but we are not rewarding nutrients in our capitalist system. We're just rewarding quantity. So mm -hmm. we have a 1,400-hectare farmer, Sagania Brothers, in southern Portugal, also incredible farm, 1,400 hectares, holistically grazing it, they're producing 5,000 liters milk a day. The only, the only buyer that they can find is Pingo Dosse, which is the biggest Portuguese supermarket, which pays them 30 cents a liter. That's the normal price that any conventional farmer gets. And that's messed up because their milk is a lot more nutrient-dense and is a lot more healthy, and they should be getting paid 50, 60, 70 cents per liter of that because of the well-being that people receive from drinking that milk compared to a milk they would, they would get from feedlots. Unfortunately, we could not change that. But what we could see is we could start measuring the ecosystem services which they're providing. So the three most famous ones being carbon sequestration through the whole photosynthesis process, biodiversity increase, soil water storage capacity. All three of them are at least equally important. Unfortunately, we're not living in a world yet where we're willing to pay for biodiversity. And for some weird reasons, we're also not, willing, not living in a world yet where we're willing to pay farmers for um, increasing soil water storage capacity, even though it would have prevented the billions of euros in damages of floodings that we paid over the last three, four years and the droughts. But governments are not there yet, so we have to accept that. What is there already, and it's a faulty market, and I don't like it, but it is existing, is the carbon market, especially the voluntary carbon market. The companies are accounting for their carbon emissions, and then they're looking for a way to compensate them. Right now, they're mostly compensating them as a project in the global south. They don't have a direct connection. They don't know exactly what's going on. And it's a very fishy market. You probably heard about this, the Vera scandals yeah. and everything that has been happening. <clears throat> um, what we can do in Regenac is we can measure the increase in carbon through the regenerative agriculture practices. And then what we're doing is we're connecting farmers to companies on a local level. So we match the company and the farmer and then that they can actually visit each other and that they can actually build a relationship with each other. So, for example, in three weeks, we're facilitating a visit from the BMW Foundation, which, for example, bought carbon credits from us, and they are visiting the farm to actually see what's going on on the farm themselves 
um, which I think is beautiful because we need to get more people back on farms. And this was kind of where the, the, the business of climate farmers started. And I have to say we are very thankful to, uh, to a company which is, at least in Germany, is very critically seen. Um, because back then we had, we had a founder scholarship, um, which was paying me 1,000 euros a month, which, which I could here live in my little Portuguese mountain village. But I couldn't do many amazing jumps. And we applied to the Google Impact Challenge on climate. So Google puts 10 million euros every year into a pot to solve climate change, uh, in quotation marks. Um, and we applied for that with a plan to generate Europe's first proper methodology to generate carbon credits for farmers in transition to regenerative agriculture. And I still don't know how exactly it happened, but one big application and a few conversations later, we somehow got announced as one of the 10 winners and we got a 650,000 euro grant and we got coaching and training from Google and they, 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 were, they were super helpful and they, they didn't get any equity, they didn't get anything from that, but there was the money that enabled us to write that methodology, which is a very boring process and massive shout out here still to Katharina Reisert, who has been writing that methodology within Climate Farmers. I could never have done that. And we got that one verified by TÜV, which is the German verification agency, mm -hmm. according to ISO 14064, which is the international standard for carbon credits. And that was verified in September 2022. And since this year, we're basically generating carbon credits for farmers right now in Southern Europe, but we're probably going to be expanding soon towards Central and Eastern Europe as well. So you have a non-profit part, the yeah. online sessions, uh, connection, networking, support for farmers, and you have yeah. the for-profit which measure and sell carbon credits. Um, mm, we're not there yet. You're not there yet? <laughs> no, like, so it goes further. Uh, so this that's the story until, that's the story until last year. And then... We had to we had to add one more complexity layer if we want to be uh, <laughs> if we want to be uh, complete. Then what we have been seeing since we started working on this carbon credit suddenly, partially due to our work, partially due to amazing work of other people like for example uh, Kiss the Ground the documentary, we have seen a rise of uh, food corporates being interested in regenerative agriculture. So suddenly we have a lot of public claims from companies that want to source 20, 30, 40, 50 percent regenerative agriculture produce. But there's no way of accounting for when is actually something, something coming from Region Ag. And they don't know how to go about it because the way how our food system is set up, we don't have a good relationship between the farmers and the food corporates because the farmers have been consecutively pushed down and lowered on the prices. So what we started doing is we started offering support in supply chain transition. And that's becoming slowly a major part of our operations is to essentially support food corporates who want to transition the farmers in their supply chain from conventional towards regenerative agriculture. So we organize, again, training with the farmers, we group them together, we measure what's going on, and we're reporting to the corporate on what's going on at the farm, and then they can reduce, they can use it to reduce their scope three emissions. So instead of selling carbon on the open market, they actually reduce what's happening within their supply chains. And hopefully, with that, and was also making sure that what is called regenerative produce is actually regenerative produce. We can move towards a way where we can actually also pay farmers for the ecosystem services and for providing more nutrient-dense food and actually start getting regenerative produce out there into supermarkets, for example. And that's also where we're working with the Adam McArthur Foundation so that finally consumers can be buying regenerative produce. Because right now, many people might be wondering, how do I get this amazing food? And it's very hard. Because it's, it's, it's still such a niche movement that either you have to find farmers online and order directly from them, which is always a great idea because then the people that should get the money get it. But most people like to work in supermarkets. And right now, you cannot buy region produce in supermarkets yet. And that's what we're working on as well by doing collaborations with these food corporates and supermarkets and influencing groups like the Anamek Asa Foundation. And in that case, they pay you by... Uh, like. The supply chain transition, for example, like you sell them a, a, is it a software you're developing at the moment or is it a? It's a package. So it's part of it is a, is a software where we're essentially tracking what's going on, but it's essentially, it's first the training that we're selling. And then we are selling the support and creating of a transition plan. And then we're selling MRV, so monitoring, reporting and verification. And usually for the first training on a farm and for the transition plan, we recommend that the corporate covers like 60 to 80% of the costs and the farmers put in 20 to 40%. So they also give a level of commitment, essentially. 
So non-profit parts supports online online sessions for the farmers for profit. Carbon credits parts the supports to the uh, in the supply chain transition for the food corporates. Um, what's the proportion of revenue from the different parts? How many are you in the company right now? Now we're thirty two people. If you want to put impact first with an economical model focus on growth, how, how did you do that here for the different companies you have there? Are these two different companies or four? Yeah, so we have we have two companies, uh, which is on the one hand the nonprofit, which is the academy, and then we have the the for profit as well, which is dealing with the supply chain transition and with the carbon credits. It would be very interesting to understand how how you build the different parts. Did you build that chronologically, or did you build that in parallel? And how did you fund yourself during these years? Yeah, you mentioned so, the Google Accelerator program, but I know yeah. you have also different parts. So the, I mean, the interesting thing is we were always focused on how do you achieve systemic change, right? How do you build the infrastructure to scale it? So it was always clear that we need to do several different things at the same time, which is something that you're normally not recommended to do as a startup, right? As a startup, the idea is you focus on one thing, you become really good at that, and you waste money with that and with that when you scale. And that was the issue that we usually had when we were on the investment field, because we were doing all of these different things. And usually the point was like, you're doing way too many different things. Yeah, but all of this needs to happen. And they all interplay and intersect together, right? And I mean, we're very happy if we also have collaborations and have other people make it. We don't need to make it happen, but these things need to happen. And whenever we see that no one else is doing it, then we're usually, okay, then let's just ask, start doing it and see where we go from there. But then we were also lucky or I don't know how you want to call it, but somehow we always found the right people at the right time. So the Google Impact Challenge got us started essentially. And then we that was rewarded to us in 2021. And then in summer 2022, we had to race around again. How many were you uh, into, before the Google Challenge? Essentially paid. We were, we, were, we were two people, like me and my co-founder, and then we had several friends who were helping us for free who were not getting paid. And then you scaled to 30 people in two No, years. no, no. And then we scaled with the Google money, we scaled to like 10, 10 to 12 people. And we could finally pay the people that were working with us before already. Yeah. And then um, one year later, we were slowly running um, out of money again. And we also needed to, 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 to scale up, or there was a lot of opportunities, there was a lot of work to be done, so we really needed a bigger team. So we raised another round. We didn't know yet what the value of the company is, so we decided to delay the decision by raising a round with a convertible note, which basically means people lend you money and it converts at the moment when you have an equity round. And we found an amazing angel investor, um, which was giving us their... Uh, part of it. And then we found one VC company that we felt very aligned with um, that I also knew already for nine years and that have been investing in one of the earliest startups that I had, which is Peerbuy, uh, or that was involved in. And that's Rockstart. And they are from Amsterdam. So um, we joined them. And that was also one of our accelerator programs with them then as well. And with that money, we could survive uh, another year because at the same time, we also won a research grant from the that we from Horizon Europe that we applied to together with Wageningen and a consortium of other academic partners to measure regeneration on farms across Europe over five years. And that gave us 750,000 euros as well. So with all of that together, we essentially had the finances to keep on growing the team. And we grew the team to, I think, 25, 26 people until now this year and then we were raising again in spring and summer and at the same time we have been getting a lot of attention and we were speaking to some of the yeah most known impact VCs out there but we were a bit frustrated because the focus was always on the financial part of the business right the focus was always like what's the return on revenue how how much do you think you can grow and we were like yeah but look at all the stuff that we're doing just the carbon credits is not the core of it but it's the work on the systemic change that's happening. And at that point, we also started doing a lot of policy work. We're working closely with the Club of Rome together because we're also realizing that if you want to have systems change in our agricultural system, politics need to be involved as well because the common agricultural policy, for example, is giving out 60 to 80% of all income of farmers. And so we started talking about this and we started looking into 
also with people from Ashoka into the whole issue that we're having in, in financing for impact startups, which is still very geared towards an extractive system and towards financial growth more than impact, essentially. We want to put the impact first. So we were in the situation that we didn't want to give a board of directors seats away, and we want the non-profit of climate farmers to, be, to own the for-profit of climate farmers in the future. So over the course of time, we want to reinvest for now the profits back into the company. And then at some point, we want to use the profits so that the non-profit can acquire the for-profit. And then we want to have a, a board that decides essentially or has veto power on positions of the for-profit, such as, for example, a sale of the company, very similar to the Purpose Foundation, what they're doing. But the Purpose Foundation and steward ownership model is basically blocking the sale in any, in any situation. What we are saying is we want to be able to assess if the sale of the company would be in line with furthering our mission of scaling regenerative agriculture. If that is the case, then a sale is okay. If not, then not. And we're still figuring out what exactly that board looks like, but we definitely want farmers to be sitting on there. We want systems thinkers to be sitting on there and just generally people who can assess the situation very well. And this is what we're piloting at the moment, this construct essentially. And Long story short, I think because otherwise we take too much. So we found an amazing <laughs> uh, investor here through many different ways uh, who's called Kai Herzog. And he gave us what is called a subordinate loan. So we basically got a loan of uh, two and a half million. And we only have to start paying this back in a few years. And he would be the last one getting money if we go bankrupt. So it doesn't limit our activities any further. And we only give him an interest rate of 3.5%. Which is, uh, which is quite the gift from him. And that enables us to really do our work and to be operating without being influenced by external investors and to be able to be fully focused on our mission without having to prioritize financial growth over impact. And that's how you manage to do all of, like to, to build all of this and to reach this point without giving any you know, equity shares of your company so far. Yeah. Um, how... Um, where have you learned how to design this whole financial model for all the entrepreneurs starting here? It, it's pretty complex to think about all the way these companies have to be set up. How did you learn this? Hey, just a 10 second break to tell you. I just released a free video presentation to explain the three key strategies I use to get 7,500 change makers to follow me on LinkedIn and to reach more than 1 million people this year with my posts. It's free. Just follow the link in the description to download it. I mean, it's a lot of times thinking about it, right? I mean, I think some great uh, places is definitely uh, Purpose. Purpose Foundation or any steward ownership is a very interesting model to be looking at. Ecosia is, for example, also one of those. Then I think Ashoka is generally super helpful in syncing with your own systems level. The School of Systems Change is also great. So there are organizations out there which are, which are supporting you with, with know-how respond. And the BMW Foundation was also super helpful here, um, which has been the, the best accelerator program that we've been going through. Um, yeah, and I think it's, also people from the degrowth movement, I think degrowth and regeneration movement are also going very closely together, um, are happy to think with you, I think, on how can you design things differently. Thank you. That's, that's, that's great resources. Uh, and that's a perfect transition too. On, on the last topic, we wanted to talk about how to choose and prepare best for an accelerator program. So you went through 11 of them. Can you explain us a bit you know, what, what would be your advice to choose and prepare best for an accelerator program? I mean, it sounds weird having been in 11, but I would say be very careful which ones you go into and what you commit to. I think there's always the right accelerator program for the right moment for you. Sometimes it can be specific, sometimes it can be broad, depends always on the context. And also, don't be afraid to ask for what you need and what you can give. So in several of the programs, we've said, for example, hey, this is what interests you in, in your program, but we saw that this and this is mandatory, and we have that already, we don't need that. So if we would join, can we make an arrangement here, or can we do this flexible? And almost always, they were willing to accommodate that, and if not, then it wouldn't make sense. And that's how we kind of got out of every accelerator what we needed and not more than that. And sometimes we also had different team members, for example, attending and not just us, um, which is also nice to spread this from the founders to the rest of the team 
that can maybe benefit more from this because yeah, if you have been on a few accelerated programs, many things become similar. Yeah, you go over the same persona and <laughs> thing. Yeah. Um, that brings me to the question of like, how do you do on your side to combine these two lifestyles that you have? Because you said, you know, you live half of the year in Germany and half of the year in Portugal. Can you explain us a bit how you do combine these, these two sides of like living in the city, living in the farm, building a company and traveling a lot? And it's my personal question. How, how do you do to make it climate friendly? I mean, essentially for me, the, the situation is relative, it, 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 again, it depends on your context, right? And for me, the situation is relatively easy. So I spent my summers in Amsterdam and Berlin because the both cities, I spent around two months with both cities. I lived in for five years and I have a lot of friends. So I just stay with friends. They become older. So there's usually guest rooms available now. And then I have my own, own project, right? My own place here in the mountains. And I really like the difference of being here where, where you have nature, where you have quietness, where it's not a lot of people coming through. I have a lot of time for processing. And then in the city, I also enjoy my, my flat white and my approach spritz and my going out and my seeing friends. But it's also very loud and very intense. And so I like the, the differentiation essentially between the two of them. And then for traveling, I, I still fly uh, sometimes. And I also fly to conferences, for example. Like um, I fly to the Climate Change Summit in Bucharest, which sounds counterintuitive. But I do believe we also need to go away from this thinking that it's the one flight that's going to kill the planet, right? What's, what matters is what are you doing with your time? What are you doing on the systemic level? What are the big impact points? I mean, British Petrol came up with the concept of the ecological footprint, which is a genius marketing move because they wanted to deviate the attention from them to the individual consumer and saying, you, the individual consumer, are the responsible. That's not true. It's the oil and gas companies and it's the chemical fertilizer companies. And what we are doing on a daily level matters for sure. And we shouldn't be flying for a party weekend to Mallorca. And I'm trying to travel as much as possible by train. I'm a huge fan of Interrail. Um, and then especially uh, for just 20% more, you can upgrade from second class to first class on Interrail. So that's, and that's a very big recommendation. But um, I also have my, my flights, which I'm still doing. And I'm not beating myself up about it because I'm dedicating my entire life to what can I do to fight climate change and to mitigate climate change. Um, and one flight that I'm taking to Bucharest is easily set off by the connections that are being made by sometimes meeting in person, for example. What has been the hardest for you, you know, the past years growing your company? I think sometimes the level of responsibility, um, because that's also one thing, right? I mean, essentially, it's very hard to turn off. Um, so I, I'm constantly thinking about cloud farmers every day before I go to bed, every morning when I wake up all the time. I haven't managed to really take holidays without without actually working during those holidays. And I promised Laura Storm um, in the Regenerative Leadership course, another amazing course, that I will take one week off uh, in December without a phone and without a laptop, which will be the first time in, in years. Because if you really care about something, then it's very hard to, to, to shut off. And it's also very hard to carry that responsibility sometimes. Like June, before we raised the round, was one of the hardest months of my life. I couldn't sleep for a while. I lost weight. I didn't have appetite because... If we would not have managed to close the round, how we did, we might have had to accept the VC on our board of directors or let people go. And I don't wish anyone to ever have to be in that situation where you have to think principles, whether it's letting people go. That's just tough. And I think that's just a very hard thing to say as well. Like being an entrepreneur is one of the toughest things you can do. Like it's definitely not an easy pass. Um, I also ended a seven-year relationship when we started with Climate Farmers because I was so focused on Climate Farmers. And I think that's also good to say as reality. You should only do it if you really find something that you're so passionate for that you really want to dedicate your life to it because otherwise it's, it, it has a very high chance of consuming you. You mentioned to me regenerative leadership and, and you're talking about burning out at the moment. You just mentioned that part. So how, how do you manage a company differently? I mean, we're basically, I mean, we're also just running experiments, right? And we're trying out and we're constantly reiterating and changing and talking with some people. But we're trying to break away with a lot of the old patterns that have just been given on us. For example, I don't really care about the exact time when people are working. I, I care about that people are delivering the right results, right? And for that, I believe the best thing to do is to have a very, very diligent hiring process where we're really looking at, is this the right step for that person? Is this the thing that person really wants to do? And if you find the right person, 
and put them in the right position, then they're going to shine. And then you don't need to control them. You just trust them and you let them work. So for example, we don't have fixed working hours. Like we have some people that start working at 11 o'clock. We have some people that work at night because there's different rhythms. And it doesn't make sense for me to send someone every morning from nine to five to an office if that's not within the biological clock of that person. And on the same thing, I also don't really believe that it, 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 is, it is my role to essentially look over, the, look over the shoulder of someone. If someone needs support, then they can be coming to me and then I'm there. But otherwise, I trust them and they can execute within their realm. They have the expertise and they can take their own decisions. And you basically empower them more than you limit them. You lead rather than you manage. Yeah. What is one book or one podcast or whatever resources you can think about that you would recommend that had a profound impact on you? Oh, there's a few. Um, I mean, Nate Hagen's The Great Simplification. It's an amazing podcast for people who are interested in systems thinking. Daniel Schmachtenberger, uh, Laura Storm, Bayo Kumulaev, Noah Bateson are all people I'm really looking up to and I'm really inspired by. Uh, they're reading Daniel Christian Wall. They're leading the way in terms of thinking how humanity can live more in line with the planet and what implications that has on a societal level. If you want to get into regenerative agriculture for the love of soil by Nicole Masters, it's an incredible book. Um, Podcast-wise, Regenerative Skills from Oliver Gaucher for people who are more on a small shoulder who really want to learn the regenerative lifestyle. Who's working with us also right now who are really getting into the nitty-gritty of things. John Kempf, Advancing Ecological Agriculture is amazing. Or Kuhn von Design, Investing in Regenerative Agriculture is also a great podcast. That's a lot of like great resources that I mostly don't know, but that's great to have so many of them. We're going to have a long list that we will share with the episode. Nice. So thanks very much for that. Is it possible to start regenerative agriculture? Two questions here. Can I start this kind of thing in a small garden? Well, I just bought a house. I'm going to have a small, tiny garden. Is it something that makes sense to start there? If I want to start, let's say I want to start originally, uh, decide to change my life tomorrow and to quit <laughs> consulting and to start a regenerative farm in Berlin, near Berlin. But what would be your advice to, to do that? I mean, the first one you can do regenerative agriculture on any size. And I think the smallest farm that I've seen was 0.1 hectare here in Portugal that was making 60,000 euros out of a market garden. The biggest problem that you're having is access to land. And that's another major issue that we're facing that with a new young generation that maybe wants to get into region ag, it's very hard to access land there. And that is a problem that we're having and that we're trying to solve on the policy level. But um, yeah, buying land in the Netherlands, for example, it's 80,000 euros per hectare on average. And that's very hard to do. But for example, in market gardens, where you essentially do high intensity vegetable production on a small scale, can play a major role in feeding cities. And I think we see this popping up a lot with like CSA, so community supported agriculture, where people buy shares of the farm and they alleviate the financial risk of the farmer and then get the vegetables in a share. Like let's say you have 100 shares, everybody pays a thousand euros per year and you get 1% of the harvest over the whole year. Um, so this is some amazing concepts that can work right for cities, I think. What is one thing that I wouldn't be able to find out about you online? Um, interesting. I'm a, I'm, I'm a big board game fan, actually. And I used to love Settlers of Catan. And now I really get into uh, Wingspan, which is a game which is all around birds and attracting birds uh, to your ecosystem and breeding them. And you learn a lot about birds while playing this. And through this, I became a bit of a hobby ornithologist. And I already identified like nine, nine of the birds in our area in Portugal now. And I'm slowly developing a passion for doing bird watching. Good Christmas, uh, Christmas gift idea. Yes, amazing Christmas gift idea, yeah. What is your ask for the people listening to this podcast now? Do you have any ask, like where can they find you? Where can they contact you if necessary? What are you hiring? Are you looking for more investment? I mean, I think I would invite everybody to be more conscious of uh, what you're eating and where your food is coming from, right? And that does not only mean like what type of things, but how is it grown? Get more in contact with farmers again. Uh, it will reward you with a lot of very beautiful, nutritious food. Um, and also, yeah, I think anybody has their role to play. Um, I think we are in times of crisis, but I think in times of crisis, it's also your time to be a hero, which is a great quote from uh, Indy Johan. Um, and I think if we want to get out of this climate crisis and this biodiversity crisis that we're in, the 
then we need all of us acting together. And I think it's for everybody to find out what your role is there. Um, and I hope that some of the sources that I mentioned can help with that. And if you want to get in contact, then I have only one social media account, which is on LinkedIn. And otherwise, you can find Climate Farmers, I think, on, on most social media accounts. Thank you very much for this in inspiring um, interview, uh, Philip. That has been a pleasure to talk to you. I have learned a pleasure. lot. Uh, it, it was really like, when I say inspiring, it was inspiring. Uh, I, I will definitely check out more about regenerative agriculture. And uh, I wish you a, a great day in Portugal and hopefully I'll see you uh, soon in Berlin or maybe in Portugal. I'd be happy to too. Very welcome to come by. I'll be here until April and then I migrate with the birds back up to Berlin in May, June. Uh, for the perfect time in Berlin as well. Exactly. Yeah, <laughs> that's the plan. Thank you very much. Have a nice day, Philip. Bye-bye. Beautiful day. Ciao. Hey, if today's episode was useful, share it with your entrepreneur's friends so that we can all have a bigger impact on this planet and give it a five star on Apple Podcasts. That will make my day. Thanks so much in advance. Have a nice day.